Welcome, everyone, to the CatsCorner.com podcast. CatsCorner.com, your source for Virginia sports. I am Brad Franklin, publisher of CatsCorner.com, coming to you live from the place where Franklin State's in the west end of Richmond, where it is Wednesday, October the 27th. Cavaliers are coming off of a uh, much more interesting than it should have been victory over Georgia Tech, 48-40. to um, Now they get to make a trip out west for a very late game on Saturday night here on the East Coast before their bye week and uh, the sprint to the finish of the season. Uh, we will talk about the said uh, ev- uh, a much more eventful game uh, against the Jackets than it should have been, um, and we will preview um, Saturday night's, um, re- I guess, homecoming, so to speak, for Bronco Mendenhall and like everybody else on the staff except for Marcus Higgins and uh, um, Clint Centum. Um, before we get started, let's go around and introduce everybody. For tonight, at least, everybody is Justin Ferber up in Loudon. How are you, my friend? And Ricky Brumfeld. Oh, good point. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I always do that, too. I'm like, Marcus Higgins is the only coach on the staff that didn't coach there. And then it's like, actually, no, that's not right. Um, at Justin underscore Ferber on Twitter. And Cavs Corner also on Twitter. Cavs underscore Corner. Great place for the in-game updates, the content items, and the occasional witty banter. Let's see. Dave is on special assignment, and I'm not allowed to tell you why. Uh, Damon's on special assignment, and I'm not allowed to tell you why. Dave will not be with us tonight. Damon is planning to be with us tonight. He will pop in at some point. Um, Do not be afraid. Do not adjust your radio dial when he just magically appears um, and then just starts talking. So if you're one of those people who skips big chunks of the podcast, we're going to find out. Because you're also, like, if you're from. adjusting a radio dial while you're listening oh. to this, you are definitely doing it wrong. <laughs> you're doing something or something wrong or really right. Um, anyway, let's talk about forty-eight to forty. I mean, dude, listen. When that when 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 that <laughs> when um, it's fourth quarter, right? Um, Virginia scores, I think, to make it forty-eight twenty-seven with like five oh nine left. Yeah, nine play. Nine it might have been less than drive. that. I don't even. I don't remember. Um, it was like not sorry, very sorry. much time. No, no, five oh nine. Sorry, my bad. I misread that. That was the drive. That was the time of the drive. It was three fifty. Yeah, right. it was like really late because I rewatched the game and was like, oh damn, I didn't realize like how yeah, right? late they put it um, away. Kind of forty eight twenty seven. You know, that thing is cooked, right? And yes. you're not even worried about it. And then two onside kicks. Georgia Tech scores two touchdowns in a combined two minutes and uh, 24 seconds. And, man, I uh, – excuse me, three minutes and 24 seconds. I I don't think I've ever seen a game where a team got two onside kicks in a row. Now, don't be one of those reply guys, okay, if you're listening to this. Don't come at me and be like <laughs> – I'm um, sure it's happening to well, you. Yeah, well, well, Brad <laughs> – in in September of nineteen ninety seven, like don't do that, okay? But if you do do that, you, you got to make sure you cite your sources because that's, that's the hot button issue wow. these days. Wow! All right, yeah. for the record, Justin said that it's at Justin underscore Ferber on Twitter. Yeah. Um, hey, I don't care. I'm I, not gonna I respond. Don't don't get my <laughs> <laughs> don't get my shirt laundry dirty here, um, dude. Two onside kicks that I don't, I, have, I have not watched in full disclosure. Have not watched the replay of the game. They looked identical to me. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe you you rewatch it. But they ran the same play twice. I mean, it, I mean, <laughs> hey, look, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? But well, also like this is also not to mention that they the first touchdown they scored they did that like they deep down the or I think it was a field goal or something they they like lined up for an onside kick and that kick oh, might have been yeah. the best executed one of the whole game. That was actually but, very well done. It, was it landed well like done. perfectly at like the five yard line. Yeah. That's right. And the UVA ended up scoring a touchdown on the drive anyway. But um, 
yeah, that, I was like, whoa, they really could have got that back if UGA didn't like get on that. Yeah. Also, um, the first onside kick they recovered was uh, it was a bad call. He was out of bounds. Like he didn't have possession of that. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I didn't. I didn't think so live, but you know, it's tough. We were really confused in the stands because it was like, um, you know, the the UVA offense came. They called a penalty, right? And the UVA offense comes out with Jay Wolfolk in the game, and it's like, all right, well, this one's over. Um, and then like they review it, and then we see them like while the guy's still reviewing it, like they switch to defense, and I was like, oh, they must know something. That's not good. And then I was like, how do you over like I don't know. I just don't think he had possession of the ball. Yeah. Um, long enough tough to one. call that. Especially yeah, since one. they had to overturn it. Um, which is just very strange. But it's funny too, like Dave's not here to say this, but when uh Armstrong hit Henry for the touchdown to put him up twenty one, Dave's like, That's not rubbing it in, right? And then it literally ended up being a difference <laughs> in the game. Dave Dave sent along a text. Oh, let, let's read it to the good people. Um keep this on the no, that wasn't the text. Um, I did that on purpose for the record. Um, make sure you talk about how sick the release move was by Wicks. He said he couldn't remember his preseason pick, but he gives me his pick uh, um, for the BYU game. I listen. He freaked I, out on that one. Yeah, I bet you he did. Listen to me. In the pantheon of like, I, I am. I am very happy to be have been so hashtag Brad was right about Lavelle Davis. But when I when I told y'all about Dontavian Wicks, I mean that one wasn't quite as like out of left field. But I was convinced that Wicks was going to be a big time player. I don't know if I realized just how like multifaceted his skill set was. The fact that the same dude who could juke that now understand full disclosure that kid was on the he was he only had one defender on that entire side of the field. So that seventy seven yard touchdown that that he sprung. Yeah. Right. Like in essence, that's a one, you make one move, you make one guy miss and you're going to score. Right. Okay. I get it. He and I believe it was that, a corner blitz. And the guy that was coming over to get him was like helping. So he was running at like full speed. Yeah. So Wicks just had to like move around him. Real quick. Yeah. So, so full disclosure, we get that. That being said, he made the one guy miss and he made the oh, one yeah. guy miss really badly. badly. <laughs> and then he just, he, he, he just like, it, it's one of those times where like you never really, you're never really sure when you when you watch guys sometimes like how fast dudes really are. When he got up to speed, you're like, yeah, nobody's catching that kid. Yeah, he's, once he got to like the fifty, it was like, okay, that's a yeah, touchdown. this is this is a touchdown. <laughs> he's much faster than I think most people understand, especially because the other one he caught. I mean, dude, the Moss and two guys at once, and I don't care how many angles I see of that catch, it blows my mind even more every time I do. I mean, that dude, I mean, the talk about high point in the ball or whatever. But what's crazy is that if you watch the play, it's like he hangs in the air like longer than d- seems normal. Like he, it looks like somebody has doctored it a little bit. Like he looks like he's been CGI'd a little bit, which is fascinating because, I mean, I saw it live. You saw it live. It's in your end zone. Um, yeah. That kid is, is absolutely filthy. And Virginia's offense, which we're going to get to in a second, being able to utilize not just him, Rex Wicks goes six catches, a buck sixty-eight, two touchdowns. Uh, Kemp gets eight for fifty. Thompson gets nine for eighty-nine. Um, <laughs> poor Rashawn Henry got one catch for a touchdown, which is you know he's kind of back to his old his old stuff. Um, <laughs> but you know if you think about the weapons that Virginia has, and you think about sort of like how like how versatile the offense is, it's like they do a lot of the same thing, which is big plays, and we're going to get to that in a second too, but. It's the way that they go about doing it, and it's like you you can rely on different guys at different times. It feels a lot like a Tony Bennett basketball team because, like we you know, I 
that that phrase, different guys, different nights, like that's a Tony staple, right? This this receiving core is absurd. And the fact that we went into the season with some folks like thinking they didn't have enough playmakers because, you know, they weren't going to have Davis this year or at least part of the year. Um, it's kind of it's kind of crazy to me that that Virginia has not just the, the country's leading, um, you know, quarterback in terms of yards passing uh, total, but that they have so many weapons that you now have, you know, talking heads on ESPN being like, man, where did all this explosiveness come from? And I just have this Louisiana. Vision. <laughs> it came from the boot. That's where it came from. Um, yeah. But I just have this vision of Robert and I going home at night and just, you know, dining on the tears of, of all of the haters. You know what I mean? Cause, and look, yeah, I mean, this must be fun for him to call too. I mean, he's got so many different things. He can so do. many toys. He has so many toys. It's like, it's like he walks out in his garage. He's like, well, crap, what incredible car am I going to drive today? But what's funny to me too, dude, is like, it was not that long ago that folks like us were banging on him, right? Mm-hmm. We were banging on him after that. You know, I remember you did like a deep analysis of of things like after that Carolina game right, that year, right? When everything sort of flipped. And, it was before that. Yeah, and right, that right, right. Kind of right. flipped it. Yeah. And you and you and we we joked that you like brought the offense back, you know. <laughs> yeah. But if you had gone back to that when you did that piece and and I had read you some of these numbers, you would have flat out passed out. You would, I would have just no said chance. they got different players, pretty much, exactly. <laughs> which they, they kind of did. They kind of did, but, but oh. um, let's talk. But about, the thing was, before it was like everything was just designed to be so short, and there was like no nothing designed for like yak. Like yeah. it was all just like uh, Perkins throws it a quick out to Kemp, who immediately gets tackled. Right, um, right, and yes. and it was like even like the receivers that were good, like Oz and Dubois, like a lot of that stuff was the same. Even Reed. It was like they, they couldn't get the guys in space. And some of that's just blocking. Um, hi, Damon. I see you have your hand up. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think I think it's the different – there's different personnel, but also, like, I think the blocking is better in space. And, and they just have dudes who can go out and make their own plays. Um, I mean, Wicks on – Wicks is – this is going to sound like hyperbole, but you have to remember I was born in 1989. I did not see the Herman Moore years – um, Wicks is the best UVA receiver I've ever seen like play for them um, he's the most dynamic I mean the numbers kind of back it up and I know it's a small sample size but like still I don't remember anyone having a run like him and that's no disrespect the closest I can think is probably Lavelle Davis which is funny um, but like yeah I mean like in terms of being able to like get up and get the ball outrun people get open make tough catches like he's as good as I've ever seen in an orange and blue uniform uh, the aforementioned Damon Dillman, main editor of CapsCorner.com, is back on the podcast. How are you, my friend? Greetings. How is everybody? We are. We are what doing. Did I miss? You are, we are doing fantastic. Let's see. We have talked about the annexation of Puerto Rico. We have talked about. Remember the Titans. I'm trying to think of like random sports movie things. Um, no, we're we're in a conversation about UVA's offense and just how like mind boggling it is that it that we get to that like after years of sort of watching them sputter and not and i and and i'm gonna reframe that in a second but anyway basically the, the gist is is like how ridiculous wix is and how um you know how good this offense has been i want to kind of take a step back um and and talk about explosiveness right so david hale um friend of the pod um i don't know i just made that up um <laughs> from espn <laughs> from like, espn <laughs> in terms like really i've been here from the start really uh 
David Hale had an interesting kind of breakdown of explosiveness, and it drew the ire of some UVA fans, including a um, f- legitimate friend of the pod, Ahmad Hawkins. Um, hello, Ballhawk. How are you? Um, and I think what some people, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not here to like cape up for David Hale, but we have talked about right. Ferber has written stories about UVA's lack of explosive, and what I, what we mean by that, I think what Hale meant by that is not that they didn't have an explosive player or two. Certainly, Alameda Zacchaeus is explosive, right? Um, Andre Lavroni is, is – yeah, right. There are guys that are explosive, right? But what Virginia's but offense – But their explosive plays were, like, few and far between. Right. What Virginia's offense struggled with was really doing a good job of being explosive from, like, one part of the field to the other part of the field, but not being explosive enough to just blow the top off every now and then. I mean, if you think about the number of explosive plays that this offense creates, if you cut that number in like half and you gave that to some of the past Virginia offenses, everybody would be happy. Like everybody would be floored, right? Because those Virginia offenses were very good at creating long drives, and then when they scored, that's the way they did it, right? They didn't do it in three, four-play increments. Now, to be fair, if you look at the drive summary from this game, right, Virginia's touchdown drives, nine plays, seven plays, three plays, uh, Eight plays, eight plays, nine plays. So even though they're explosive, they're still doing. They're not doing everything in four or five plays. But they have the capability to do it, and that's the difference. Of those past Virginia teams early in Broncos tenure, regardless of how much talent they may have had, did not produce at this level in terms of chunk plays, in terms of yards after contact, yards after catch. They just didn't. Right. This group is on a whole other other level. And I think it's fair to both understand to like to to call out and say, yeah, this offense is crazy. Um, and then also to think about like, well, what changed? And if you think about it from a schematic point, I don't think a whole lot's changed. I think a lot of this is like Brennan Armstrong just really fits what they want to do. They want to have a guy who can run around but also throw the ball. And he's in a really good groove with the offense. He clearly understands it. But he's also got a crap ton of playmakers around him. I mean, and you th- and, and I think it's also, too, the way that those pieces fit together. Like, think about Thompson, Kemp, Wicks, Woods, Henry, and then even when Davis comes back. A lot of those pieces don't necessarily fit on top of each other. They all sort of – there might be some, some, some connections in the Venn diagrams of, like, their skill sets, but they're all kind of pieces that can fit together. And I think that's the thing for me as I watch this group that really stands out, which is these dudes – it, they're tough to guard, man. Like it's it's hard. It's really hard. What are you gonna do, right? How are you gonna defend UVA? Ferber, in your opinion, like what's the what what other than oh Brennan's having an off night or oh the receivers have cases of the dropsies? Like what do you do as a defense? It's it, you just have to create pressure, right? You have to blow everything yep. up. Yeah, the the key is probably to get pressure, and UVA's offensive line has done a really good job at mitigating that. I mean. I think in the last two games, Brandon's only been sacked like twice. Um, the only sack Georgia Tech had on Saturday was the first play of the second half, and that was just an un, like an unseen blitz right up the middle, um, which was a good call by Georgia Tech. So um, that was it. I mean, other than that, he he had room and rhythm, and, and you look back at like that Illinois game, like he had all day to throw in that game. William and Mary, same thing. Um, the game where he was thrown off was the weight game. I think he still threw for like 400 yards. Um, but you know, he had sacked like six times or something. So that's the key. You have to find ways to get home. I think UVA adjusted after that game a little bit and they've done a much better job protecting. Um, and maybe that was just a bad game. 
because uh, it sort of is an outlier in the season. So I think that's the way you get pressure. And then you have to probably just try to force a turnover or two. Um, Brennan, Brennan has been very accurate this year for the most part. He will let one or two go, though. And, and the key is you really have to, like, get those. So, like, Louisville, for example, like, they turned both of those into turnovers and scored on both of those drives. Um, you know, like, Wake turned him over a couple of times. Uh, North Carolina had a big one in the second half. Um, Georgia Tech didn't have any. And, and there were a few plays that maybe they could have, like, if the ball had just gone a little bit different or whatever. Um, you know, Keaton makes a crazy one-handed grab that maybe he saves a pick. Um, you know, that those are the types of things that, like, you just if he plays mistake free and is able to have the room and the time um, to make plays, he's carving up zone. Like Georgia Tech was in zone that whole game, and and he just destroyed it. Like I mean, guys are just running, and, and a lot of that is the credit to the wide receivers too, obviously. And like you said, you know, like they have complementary skill sets. You know, you're almost forced. For example, like you're almost forced to put like Billy Kemp on a linebacker because like you have so many other guys you're worried about, right? You know, if you don't pay enough attention to Wicks, he's going to be. If you don't pay enough attention to Henry, he can be. Um, Thompson has probably grown more as a player than than any other guy on this team from one year to the next in terms of playing wide receiver. Um, and then you have Woods. I mean, you have so many different guys that can beat you so many different ways. So, I mean, the real key is, like, disrupting the timing, I think, especially if you're going to play zone. Yeah. Damon, you and I were in the press box the other night. We were talking about Thompson and – and the fact that like the dude just doesn't get tackled and he's not an overly like physical appearing dude. Right. He doesn't look like he does. He's not like Jelani Woods, right? Jelani Woods looks like a dude who's going to run you over and take your lunch money. Right. Thompson is, is not that kind of guy, at least from an appearance standpoint, but when he plays the game of football, I mean, he is, he is as violent a receiver. I, I don't think I've ever used that word, but he is that, I mean, dudes bounce off of him. He sheds guys. He's, He's he's fighting through tackles in a way that is that it not only like pumps up the crowd, but it also I mean, like he constantly gets extra yards when he has no business getting extra yards. Have you ever seen a dude who could essentially was allergic to being tackled the way that kid's allergic to being tackled? Uh, not off the top of my head, especially he's so lanky too, which those, you know, usually guys who are hard to tackle are like bowling balls running down the field, like a Devin Darrington, for instance, just, uh, you know, the big stocky build, but he's just so lanky and, and, and you don't see a whole lot of six, what is he? Six, four ball carriers. And, and he's just, yeah, he's such a unique talent. I had somebody asking me about him. The other day, uh, him just being an example of, you know, would would any other program, uh, would, would this have worked the way it has with Keaton, the way he got here intending to compete for the quarterback job and uh, got hurt, and he's just totally transformed himself into, into – Literally, they created a position for him. And and every game, if you go and watch, go watch the clips that Ferber singled out in the film room, there's like – Every single game, you see reasons why he he is so unique. Uh, the way he runs, the catches he makes, the just the just the general athleticism. It's it's such a unique package, and yeah, a lot of the things you guys have already touched on. You've already mentioned. Uh, I caught some of it as I was first jumping on, but but yeah, he's he's just so unique, and and they continue. Especially, it's last year, obviously. It's not like they went into the season 
intending to scheme up and design ways to get him involved in the offense in a variety of ways. Obviously the circumstances where he got hurt uh, in camp and they made the best of an unfortunate situation. But now this year they had that opportunity. They were able to scheme up these different ways. And it seems like they're still kind of sprinkling in different ways as we get deeper into the season here for uh, things that they haven't shown before with them. And who knows, they probably still have a few more things that they haven't shown yet with them. So it's just the, the way it has worked out for him and the way they have maximized what he can do. And as we've seen, he can do so many different things, uh, running the ball, catching the ball. Uh, he hasn't completed a pass yet. The, the guy who came here as a quarterback, but there's still plenty of time for him to do that. So it's just, yeah, I, I can't think of a circumstance like I know your original question was as a runner, but just in everything he can do, he's just so unique. And it's it's just fascinating to watch the way they've been able to continue to throw different things at teams that that they're just not quite prepared for, because how can you be? You don't see this every week. You know, what's interesting is like <clears throat> when you think about you know, you guys both made the point that he came to UVA as a quarterback, which I, I think is not – it's one of those things I think that for the normal, you know, football fan, you know, they're not – they don't – I don't think they really understand, like, the the intricacies of playing wide receiver, right, of route running, of how – you know, you're not just like, oh, go out there and I'll throw you the ball. There's a lot more that goes into it, right? Being able to not just understand coverages, but also understand like what you need to do physically in order to make the most of the advantages that you get because of the coverages that you see, right? And for him to be at this level, considering he's this is not a position he's played his whole life, right? This is still something he's adjusting to. Um, I, I think he 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 obviously is is put in the work to to take a lot of steps in a very small amount of time. And oh yeah, by the way, that last year was co- was a COVID season, so it wasn't like he was even getting like you know regular, you know normal quote unquote normal practices, right? Um, and I think when you think about the big picture here, so much of this comes from one. I think you know we talked earlier in the season about you know, and I had that mea culpa about the idea that like Virginia throws a lot of formations at you, and well, that's part of why they're good. And I remember I kind of poo pooed that, and then basically the defensive coordinator for Carolina came out and basically said that. So it's clear that like the, the pressure points that UVA's offense can put you in is beyond it's, it's bigger than just the talent they put on the field. It is in some ways a lot scheme, right? Is that they might run a million formations and you're never really sure what's coming. Um, I have been as bad in the press box this year at calling what the play was about to be than I've ever been. Um, you know, there were definitely times where, you know, you'd see, you know, Tanner Cowley go in motion. You knew exactly what was coming, right? The staff is, I think Bob, Dr. Bob and his group are doing such a phenomenal job. Um, but I think so much of it also comes down to Brendan Armstrong. And I feel like before we segue over, I want to talk a little bit about Armstrong. Um, Ferber said earlier that Wicks is right now playing the best at wide receiver than anybody he's seen. Um, during his, you know, his time on earth at Virginia. I, I'm I'm struggling to, to come up with how to put into words the fact that, like, I did not think I would see somebody who could play it better than Bryce Perkins did. And I'm watching somebody do it better than Bryce did it. And so much of that is because so much of with Bryce was just the dude is just filthy, right? So much of what Brendan is doing is so multifaceted and it's filthy in, in different ways. Um, I never thought – I. 
you know, I, like I made that joke earlier, you know, about there's a guy at, um, you know, from Virginia leading the country in passing yardage. Like that just blows my mind at this point in the season, maybe after that game one or two, sure. But like you, you really, I mean, I don't think I can put too fine a point. Like you really have to be pretty good to do that at this point in the season to lead the entire country. Um, that's not, that's, that's not, that's not a thing that happens, right? Like it's not, you don't stumble into that. Um, now granted he's, he's benefited from the fact that he's put up a whole lot of yards and a whole bunch of games. And what's funny about this is he, the other night he goes 29 to 43 for 396, four touchdowns at a QB rating of 175 and a half, right? If you told me that line for most, most of those London years, I would have passed out like 400 yards passing, four touchdowns. Oh yeah. By the way, he ran for 99 and two others. Like he, he accounted for six touchdowns, man. Like that's wild. And I think that for Virginia fans who, you know, understandably, and I asked Bronco the question about whether he was getting enough national love. I mean, it just, I, I think it's just, I'm still so shocked by the whole thing. And and if anybody takes that as a negative, I, I don't mean it that way. I'm just saying like, I expected the kid to be good. I didn't think he was going to be passing yardage leader good. Um, and we talked last week about, you know, what he can do better and, and whatever. So now I'm just curious in the big scheme of things, like, where do we have him right now for all ACC? Is he better? Is he ahead of Kenny Pickett? Is he not? Um, should he be in the you know serious conversation for winning the O'Brien Award, which is a which is never something I've ever said on a podcast? Ferber, let's start with you. Would you have him ahead of Pickett right now? And how serious of a of a of a player for national awards is he, in your opinion? Um, I think right. If you want me to answer the first question right now, I'd probably say no, um, just because of the record. And I know that the, I'm just telling you how people make their choices. Um, the record is important. Kenny Pickett just beat Clemson on national stage. So um, I think he would be in the right spot. And Kenny Pickett in his own right is having a great season. He's well below Armstrong in yards, but he's played one less game and he has 23 touchdowns and one interception. Um, so he's having a remarkable season. Um, but like Armstrong, and that kind of takes me to my ultimate point, we'll find out in this next month, you know, like where they stand. So, you know, I've seen the tweets about like, why isn't Armstrong in the Heisman race? And, and over the years, like, I mean, even with Bryce in the last couple of years, I've seen people say that, which I at the time kind of laughed at was like, he's not even close to that conversation because he's not like elite in terms of numbers. Like he's not near the top nationally in, in most quarterback categories, except for anecdotal stats that people will come up with in posts. Um, but, you know, like, you know, and then also UVA was not in like the national conversation. So you kind of kind of take that first part away, you know, because Armstrong is leaving the nation in passing yards. I think he's second in passing yards per game. Um, you know, he's, he's got a lot of touchdowns, not a lot of interceptions. If he gets his running game going, then that even takes him up another level. But the big thing, if you want to talk about, like, can he get in the conversation for like ACC first team, all that sort of stuff? keep winning games. If they keep winning games, they'll get more attention and he'll get more attention right now. I mean, they're having a really nice season at six and two, but they've been largely off the radar. Um, and, and that's not their fault, but it is true. I mean, you, the first two games, nobody knew what UVA was doing. They got blown out by Carolina. They dropped to two and two people kind of forget about them. Um, then they've kind of creeped their way back up, but not like they haven't had a lot of like signature moments that people remember. Um, nationally people are starting to talk about him i think though and 
and UVA's offense as a whole being more explosive. So I think if he keeps playing the way he's playing, putting up the numbers, um, and they keep winning games, which is not completely in his control, but, you know, you always hear about that, like, Heisman moment that quarterbacks have, like, you know, he's going to have his – and the good thing is he's. it's not like – it's not like his last four games are going to be off the radar, right? Like, he's got this BYU game. If they go in that one, they're 7-2. and two, They're almost surely ranked. Um, you know, another chance to put up yards. Then you have the bye, and then you have a rank, uh, almost surely ranked Notre Dame team um, at coming to your house. Then you have Pitt, who everybody's in love with right now. And then you have your rivalry game against Tech. And then a potential bowl game. Um, like, you're going to have – obviously, the awards are done before then. But um, you're going to have your chances if you're him. And, and I think that um, – if he keeps doing what he's doing, he can stay in the mix. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I, the reason he's not in like the, the Heisman conversation is because it's not, it's not just, it's just, it's, it's the stats are obviously really important. Like they don't give it to random players, but they also don't give it to players who are on like um, under the radar or like nondescript teams. Like they almost always go to teams that are like in the playoff or around the playoff. Um, you can go back and look at the list of winners, like, Almost all of them had double-digit wins. So if they keep winning, he's going to have a shot. And if, if nothing else, I mean, like, you know, awards, it'll be cool to see him get awards. But, you know, if he keeps winning, I think he'll have a chance to do that. And if not, you know, UVA fans will still know how, how good he was. Uh, Damon, same question to you. Where, where, do you. where would you have him right now, all ACC? And do you think he's a legit candidate for those national awards? It's amazing to me that you bring this up because I was having a conversation with Andrew Ramsbacker the other day about this very subject. And he was playing devil's advocate a little bit. And not that he was arguing this, but he was playing devil's advocate and making the case that he could see just because we all know how these voting things work uh, to Ferber's point earlier. Um, He was making the argument that he could see a way where Armstrong doesn't make all ACC at all Uh, because Pickett, first team and then say wake forest goes unbeaten uh you you almost have to guarantee sam hartman would make second team right and then it probably comes down to brennan armstrong season versus sam howell's reputation uh and plus how they both finished down the stretch here this last month of the season for third team and again not that it's not that it's uh He's not, not arguing that that's how it should be. Right. No, impossible. no one's saying that yeah. that's how, but couldn't you see that path? Couldn't you see it unfolding like that? It's, it's not that far fetched. It's especially it's, if UVA it, goes like seven and five. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it sounds ludicrous, but it's really not as again, if Sam Howell finishes strong, um, Wake Forest finishes strong. So yeah, I agree. Everything Justin said was spot on. Um, it's all in how everybody finishes these last couple of weeks here. Uh, to the Heisman point, uh, the last guy to win the Heisman who wasn't on a college football playoff team was Lamar Jackson in 2016. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you have to finish uh, to, to even be in. The, I think it's a credit to the fact that they've gone on this four game winning streak is why Brennan's name is starting to sneak into some of those national awards conversations, including uh, the Heisman, why they're starting to get why he's starting to get a little bit more attention uh, from national outlets and national pundits and, and, and because yeah. it's one thing to be putting up big empty numbers on a mediocre team, 
But when you're throwing for 400 yards a game and that team is winning each of those games, winning, they've won six. If they can get to seven, eight, nine, they, they could get to nine or 10 wins if, if things fall the right way. Uh, yeah, then he's 100%. I don't know necessarily still in the Heisman, but all ACC first team, if they beat Pitt and he outplays Kenny Pickett, that changes a lot of the narrative. Um, but yeah, there's still, there's still a lot of football still to be played. Uh, but, ju- but, but I mean, to, to your original point, Brad, ju- just that, that it's the last week in October and we're having this conversation, uh, is, is remarkable. I remember hearing, um, I remember hearing when Bryce Perkins was here, I would hear every once in a while that as good as Bryce Perkins is the coaching staff felt that for what they want, what they want to do a quarterback Armstrong was a better fit. And, and I remember hearing like, this is at the peak of Bryce Perkins, uh, and the things he would do. And you're like, really? Okay. That's interesting. And now it makes sense hearing like when you would hear those things, because you the, obviously the way this has unfolded, but I've never seen a quarterback put up these kinds of numbers. You'll see quarterbacks throw for all these yards. You'll see these statistics at the end of the season. You're like, how do they do that? How do they put up all those yards? And now we're seeing how they do that. Like we're seeing it firsthand. We're watching. And again, I like the point we made last week, like it's done in the flow of the offense. Uh, For the most part, these aren't garbage yards as they're trying to come back. Uh, Obviously second half of the Carolina and wake games, but but they needed every one of whatever the 400 and some almost 500 yards he threw for Louisville in that win. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just been, it's incredible to watch uh, just seeing how a guy it's one thing to see the numbers on paper, but seeing how it actually happens firsthand has just been incredible to watch. And uh, kind of the point we made last week, I see no reason why it can continue here down the stretch, but to to he just needs to keep building his case at this point he's built a strong case but he needs to keep building that case uh down the stretch yeah Um, i mean i think that like the the dude um do you guys know who bailey zappy is he's a guy from uh, western kentucky right yeah okay cool you do know but like a lot of people probably don't know who that is because he plays at western kentucky but he has like the same stats as as a brennan does or like close yeah they're pretty Um, much yeah they're right on the right, and it's like I'm not saying that dude should be in the Heisman race, but like, it, like yards don't matter until I bet there's a Western Kentucky are. podcast where someone is saying yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> but like, yeah, like the yards are like I mean, like I I think he has earned all the praise he's gotten, and probably has not gotten enough to be quite honest yeah, with you. But I would agree with that. But I would I would also say that like until you make a mark on the national stage, no one's gonna know about it. Right. No, people yeah. aren't checking the stats websites every day to decide who wins the Heisman. Um, and, but yeah, this is kind of what it looks like though. Like, um, if UVA was, um, in Pitt's position, I think like Kenny Pickett has gotten some Heisman buzz. I think Brennan would be getting it. Like, yeah, I agree with that. If, yeah. If they, had, like, if they had like beaten UNC and lost a wake or vice versa and UVA was ranked like 15th or something like, yeah, they'd be right there in the, he'd be in the mix for sure. Um, and he's going to have his chances. Um, like I said, so I think it'll be interesting to see how he does, but like, I remember a couple of years ago, there was some stat going around where it was like Kyler Murray who won the Heisman and Bryce were the only two players with like a certain number of passing yards and a certain number of rushing yards. And like, why isn't Bryce being considered like when Murray's the favorite? <laughs> it's like Murray threw for like 5,000 yards. 
in addition to rushing for all those yards. So, like, if you want to know what a Heisman season looks like, this is kind of what it looks like. Um, you just have to keep winning games. And, yeah, like you mentioned, Lamar Jackson, the only other person I could think of, like, in recent memory that won the Heisman that wasn't, like, on a really, really, really good team was Tim Tebow. Um, I think they were, like, eight or nine win team that year. Um, and still very good and in the national conversation, but, like, that was an outlier. I, I'm just realizing now that I didn't tell you guys we were going to do this, but um, I talked to Andy Ludicky, who is um, behind MyPerfectFranchise.net. Um, so we had a quick little spot with him, and we will come back and talk about uh, the BYU game. Andy, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great, Brad. How you doing, man? <sighs> I can't complain, brother. Uh, Virginia football is rolling along. They've got the nation's leading passer and for for those of us who have watched virginia football for i know as a texas guy you know this is probably you know kind of old hat for you i don't know has texas or well, i guess maybe vince young did it but anyway what i was gonna say is to have a guy leading the country in passing yardage at uva just is i'm still not i'm still not entirely sure it's real um it doesn't you know i go to the go to the the national leaders page and to see him up there is still son of strange so it's been a fun season for the who's and certainly a, a good season on the podcast how are things out there man i know that you know, if you listen to the news, which I know is always problematic and probably bad for me as a media person to say that out loud. But, you know, it certainly seems like there's a whole lot of issues out there in terms of, you know, finding employees and retaining them. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of businesses across multiple, whether it's, you know, doesn't matter what part of the country you're in, doesn't matter what industry you're in. There are a lot of folks out there who own businesses who need employees and they can't seem to find them. I would imagine for somebody who does what you do, there's obviously a lot of uh, a lot of that for you, and I'm curious if you can help kind of shine a light on some of your strategies or what you've um, heard from different franchisees or or what you've helped them with in terms of recruitment and retainment, and what kind of um, you know what kind of strategies there are for for kind of solving that problem um, that that a lot of folks have right now. Yeah, no, I think this is a great topic. Uh, it's something that I have felt uh, in a very real world situation for. I guess ever since the pandemic started, it's been it's been a total script flip for us at Synergy Home Care. I I typically employ about a hundred uh, low wage caregivers that are out there in the community um, working in in folks' homes, and it's low wages for us. It's it's nine to ten dollars an hour. Minimum wage here is seven dollars and twenty five cents. So I, I'm less than McDonald's a lot of times. So. I really struggled early on because uh, Uncle Sam was paying um, people to sit on their couch well north of what I was able to pay them. And so it made me kind of totally go back to the drawing board on how we not only recruited, but how we retain to make sure we keep the right people uh, and keep them long term. So, yeah, I wanted to talk to you guys about a few different things that we did in hopes that maybe if you're a manager out there, that employs folks and you're struggling to find good people or you're a business owner. And that's something that's a pain point for you as well. Maybe these things will help out. Um, so first and foremost, uh, this is a simple one, but uh, as far as finding candidates, the indeed.com is a great starting point. As simple as that sounds as elementary as that, that is it, you can put up free postings. You don't even need to, to pay for the sponsor to add, but indeed.com is a great starting point. And then from there, what I like to do on Indeed uh, is you can actually target specific employees on there that aren't like a recruiter uh, where, where you're actually 
going out and finding them rather than coming to your job. So that's a pay to play kind of deal. And I think it's like a hundred dollars per a hundred resumes per month. But if you're not getting what you want for the, through the free, then that's the next step. I, I don't think that going to the sponsored uh, is as effective as going out there and recruiting on indeed. So that's first and foremost is indeed.com start there. Uh, there's also some other stuff out there. Zip recruiter snag a job that are great, but uh, indeed's a great starting point. So after hiring these folks, the thing that we really needed to change was, was how to retain them and putting out incentives that would keep them motivated to stay with us when we knew that Uncle Sam was paying them $17 an hour to stay at home. So first and foremost, I bought my, my partner out during the pandemic. Uh, it was uh, in August of last year. And when I did that, the first thing I did when I when I bought the company and owned it 100% outright was I created a profit sharing plan. And with that profit sharing plan, I went through a lot of hoops. I, I brought on uh, some attorneys. I brought on a TPA firm, like a, a, an admin assistance firm that that specializes in profit sharing plans and paid a couple of thousand dollars, like two grand to, to get this thing set up. But I've got a profit sharing plan where now 10% of my company as net profits on an annual basis go into a fund. And I'm basically self-funding these folks 401k and uh, these folks that are, are getting now a 401k from me, they never could afford to save money in their life before they've lived paycheck to paycheck forever. So anyway, now I've got a, a profit sharing plan and, and the way that they get the money is we'll put X, Y, Z dollars, say it's a hundred dollars in the, in the bank account in the, in the fund year one. Well, they can't access it themselves in year two until year two. And that they, the only way they can access it is if they quit or retire. And if they access it in year two, they can only get 20% of it. Year three, 30%, year four, 40%, oh, so on and so forth. So there's a vesting program out there with our profit sharing that, that keeps them motivated to stay with us and also watch their bank account grow. So I did that first and foremost. Um, we also put in a referral program. We realized that our good employees, we wanted more of. So when we have good employees and they send us their friends, that's somebody that they're, they are putting their reputation on the line for, and they are going to have hopefully the same kind of quality of work that the friend that referred them did. So uh, our current employee did. So we put a referral bonus and we pay everybody a hundred dollars for any caregiver, any, any employee that comes to us, works for us for, I believe it's 40 hours. Once they work for us for 40 hours, then we give our initial employee a $100 referral bonus. We also put in a go to work bonus. As silly as this sounds, just to compete with Uncle Sam, we put in a go to work bonus for folks that just worked 40 hours a week and did their job, showed up in time with their uniform on, followed the care plan. They got $250 a month extra. We also have uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield benefits. 50% uh, of, uh, of our qualified caregivers get Blue Cross Blue Shield at, uh, paid for by us. So I put all those things into place. And I will tell you, none of them move the needle. And this is so important for you all to understand. None of them move the needle like the rewards and recognition that we started with many years ago and that we've really honed in on lately. So that's the main thing I want to tell you is the stuff that's far-sighted, while it might be great for some employees, it's not going to move the short-term needle like what we have seen with our rewards and recognition program 
And it's really simple stuff, but you got to think that when you're working with lower wage workers, their number one motivation is not money. It's something else. And in our line of work, it's caring for, for the elderly. So, and it's really getting recognized for good work. So what we do is we have quarterly awards where we have a caregiver of the quarter, a client impact award, a quality assurance award, and maybe one or two others uh, that we give out with monetary bonuses, an award letter, a, a frame certificate. And then we also started this year, and I'm looking at my little list of, of what on our strat plan, what we're doing this year, but we put together uh, many rewards. So every week, my staff is sending out a little thank you letter to a caregiver that did good work. And for somebody also, two letters, one a week to somebody that did good work and one that's been with us for a, a long period of time and just thanking them for being with us. So those just little notes themselves are so impactful. They call us about those. They thank us for them. They say, thank you for thinking of me. So little recognition like that can go a long way. And the other thing that we're doing now is a mentoring program. We'd like to promote from within. And right now we don't have any opportunities within our organization. We just promoted a caregiver to internal staff uh, about two months ago. Our internal staff is filled up. So we created a mentor program where we're going to have our seasoned caregivers help those and mentor those through a series of meetings and touch points to help them feel like they're giving back and feel recognized and also help our caregivers act more like our good caregivers. So those are a few of the things that we're doing to really retain caregivers or employees, I should say, and incentivize them as well. Good deal. Well, Andy, real quick before we wrap up, I, I want to—I I know that there might be some folks out there who are interested, you know, in maybe potentially owning a franchise. But this, you know, the idea of like trying to recruit and retain employees might scare them off. How can folks get in touch with you if they're interested in, in looking at a franchise? That's easy. Uh, Andy at myperfectfranchise.net is my email address, or 404-973-9901 is my cell. You can text me there. My website is myperfectfranchise.net, or you can see my posts, uh, and you'll see my contact information on the posts so that, are, that are pinned to the top of the board. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I'd love to help anybody out. We can talk through different types of models that have low employee counts, higher quality employees. But really, you know, what we talk about when we, we start to work together is finding the business that really fits your skill sets and, and what you're looking for from a business. So anyway, that's uh, how you can get in touch with me and I'd love to help. Feel free to reach out to me at any time. Awesome. Well, Andy, thank you very much for your time, sir. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care, buddy. Thank you, Brad. Appreciate it, man. I want to thank Andy for coming on the show and talking to us a little bit about, um, you know, it's obviously a weird time and a lot of folks who run businesses are looking for folks and um, talking about ways to just sort of um, retain them. So my thanks to him and his support of the podcast. Uh, let's get to BYU. Um, I don't know if you guys know this or not, um, but Bronco Mendenhall used to coach at BYU and he left BYU to come to UVA. And now the game that Bronco never wanted to play is next on the schedule and it's in Provo. It's going to be late on the East coast. Good luck to everybody, uh, my sister included, who uh, if she makes it to halftime, I will be shocked. Hell, if I make it to halftime, I'm going to be shocked. Um, an interesting matchup with the Cougars, but I, I before we get to the football side of it, I mean, we got to talk about Bronco um, and his a whole, basically his whole staff, right? Um, they all came, you know, from BYU. Um, it's a tired, it's a tired cliche in sports to just focus on whatever the, 
you know, the topic du jour is that week. Um, you know, we used to go into press conferences on Mondays, like, you know, joking about like which, you know, which angle everybody was going to take. Um, this is one of those though, that I think you can't talk about the game without talking about the angle. I mean, I legitimately don't think you can talk about this game without talking about Bronco and BYU. Um, it certainly seems like there are, there's a faction, at least I'll say of the fan base at BYU who is very appreciative of what Bronco and his folks did while they were there. Um, I don't get the sense that there's a, you know, an overarching, you know, animosity towards him for leaving. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's almost universal positive. Yeah. You know, vibes. Oh yeah. The people I've talked to this week, uh, I believe the the phrase that was used was there are a few knuckleheads who may boo on Saturday, but yeah, the overwhelming majority. Uh, I didn't realize how down that program was when Bronco took over as head coach. Uh, Relative to what they'd been, because they yeah. they were like basically like Welsh era UVA plus a national title and a Heisman winner, I guess. And they um, had and three, then they had like three bad years. <laughs> yeah, they had three losing seasons under Crowton. And the people from from uh, Provo I've talked to talk about three bad seasons, losing seasons under Crowton. Like it's and for them, it's like yeah, like yeah, the worst, the worst thing program that's ever in the country. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, but then yeah, obviously Bronco came in and righted the ship right away. It, it and he it, and he left after a, like eleven years. It wasn't yeah, like right, he right. he like it wasn't like he was there for two years and then like pulled a lean Kiffin or something. <laughs> the thing about, you know, and we look back on, on that coaching search and, and we won't go into the specifics of what was admittedly just the weirdest, like couple weeks of my life, but Bronco was not rumored for the job. It wasn't like, you know, at the time there were a whole bunch of, you know, um, there were a whole bunch of people saying, well, you know, Bronco's going to be one of the guys for this job. It was very much off the radar choice um, very much off the radar selection nobody, process. Nobody saw him in town. Nobody saw, nobody saw him in town. Um, I can imagine if I'm a BYU fan that, that that could be frustrating, right? That, you know, it just sort of came out of the blue. Um, and then there was the whole sort of, there was a lot of like, maybe I don't want to call it weirdness. Uh, let's call it um, unorthodox way of not just, you know, he coached their bowl game and, you know, he came and he did the press conference. He was very clear. That he was very excited about this new opportunity, but then he was going back and he was basically back in BYU mode until the end of that game. Um, and then obviously everything with the, you know, that first year and you know, I, I, this whole, this whole week, all I've been thinking about is Damon's um, oral history on that first year and how, you know, stark a difference everything was and stuff. Um, but I would imagine that if I'm a BYU fan, I look back on those years fondly. It was a lot of success. He, he did a lot of good things. But then, the you know, it just sort of stopped and it ended. And that's not to say that folks should feel like, you know, any type of way about it. I'm just saying that, like, if if your team is kind of in a good spot and then the guy leaves the way, you know, just kind of randomly, um, you know, a lot has changed in the years since then. Um, not the least of which is that, you know, Virginia right now kind of humming along. Cavaliers built and built and built, had a little bit of a down, a little bit of a slide last year, but you know, are obviously in a really good spot this year. I'm just curious how we think BYU fans see Virginia and the program that Broncos built. Do you think that they're proud? Do you think they're, you know, jealous, angry? Like, what do we think fans? Th I mean, I understand that like there's a just a universal sort of like appreciation for what Bronco did for them, but I'm just curious what how they think of UVA. Damon, what do you think? How do you, how do you feel like BYU fans look at UVA? 
So the sense that I have gotten in talking to people is that there's absolutely, uh, at, at the very least, a casual interest from the BYU perspective in how things are going with Bronco. A lot of that is, a lot of that goes beyond Bronco. A lot of that goes uh, toward, because of uh, the staff, a bunch right, of guys right. who, who not just coach at BYU, but were players at BYU as well. So there's that, that connection there beyond Bronco with the entire staff. Um, I do think the fact that BYU has been successful uh, these last few years under Sitake helps. I think I, I don't think there's any sort of like jealous. I don't think they keep an eye on Bronco, and and there's a bitterness about it. I think it would be different if like Bronco had left and BYU had you know had three more consecutive losing seasons, which is not something they're accustomed to. But 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 the program has uh, been successful these last these last few years, and so but there's absolutely at the very least that casual interest. People keep an eye on it. I know that that there there's some media members out there who when i think the one thing that got a lot of people's attention was the the uh the boise state game in 2017 when they went out to boise and rolled that night remember that that friday night game right yeah uh that got a lot of people's attention at byu uh like oh it looks like bronco might have things going in the right direction and then they saw when they won the coastal division uh again i think people saw that but i think i think people are I, they're definitely appreciative for what bronco did i never knew until talking to people this week this i found interesting bronco was apparently pretty transparent for a lot of his time at byu that he did not intend to the, the way it was described was he did not intend for that to be a lifetime job for him he he i guess he spoke yeah. a lot about like he said uh, that in his like exit press conference. Like he was uh, like, I told you I wasn't going to be here though. Yeah. <laughs> like I do remember now that you bring that up. I do remember that. Yeah. Uh, but like, I guess, I guess there were rumors that uh, the, the Wisconsin job was open at some point. I, I'm not sure exactly when. And there he was, was also rumors. thrown around for like UCLA, I think. And like a couple other jobs like out West Oregon state, I think was open at one. Well, point. the other jobs that really appealed to him apparently were the service academies, which, right. uh, which makes sense considering what drew him to UVA, what drew him to UVA was that football wasn't the top priority. Academics were just like at BYU football wasn't the top priority. Um, the religion was, and um, at the service academies, obviously football is not the top priority either, but yeah. So anyway, I think there's a lot of appreciation for what he did. Um, I think, I think people were surprised at the timing of when he left, but not necessarily that he left. And I think, I think everybody's just kind of Bronco used the word separation on Monday. And I think that's probably the best word for it is just that everybody's kind of moved on and, and they kind of keep tabs on how things are going, but there there's, you know, everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Now Bronco said he's never actually watched a BYU game since he's been here because when does he have time to, and I mean, obviously it's probably easier for BYU people to watch UVA because of the time zone differences and things like that. If they get the ACC network, they're not Comcast subscribers, but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I, I, I think it's just an appreciation and everybody's just kind of gone on with their lives on both sides of it. I think the six year difference is probably yes. like, a, if it had been like if the game was originally supposed to be in like 2019 or something. And they, they moved them around. Um, and, and if it had been then, maybe it would have been a lot different. 
Um, but you mentioned that BYU's been successful, so I can't imagine that they're too upset about how things are going. I mean, and they had Zach Wilson last year. Yep. So that was probably really fun for them. Um, also, like, they're headed to the Big 12, which is awesome for their program and other programs at the school, which is something that Bronco really wanted. And that was probably one of the reasons he left was because he didn't believe in the sustainability of independence. 100% um, one of the reasons he left. Yeah. So, I mean, like now they're headed to the Big 12 and he even mentioned on Monday that he was really happy that that was happening and all that stuff. So that's cool. But so I feel like they're probably in a position where they're probably not too upset about how things are going. But the only thing I could think is maybe that they they probably don't want another like LDS heavy staff out there recruiting um, against like not against BYU, but like you know, think of Andrew Gentry and guys like that. Like those are guys that BYU might've gotten if this staff didn't come to UVA. I mean, those are guys historically BYU got, right? Right. And yeah. so That's UVA what I'm can, saying. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and Bronco has at times, and I don't know if all UVA fans understood or maybe even appreciated. I don't know this comparison, but he, he, he would, he would sort of frame the LDS aspect for BYU against like the education aspect for UVA, right? A selling point that speaks to a certain type of student athlete in a way that like a lot of other schools can't really compete with, right? Now, obviously with BYU and LDS, it's a very, I mean, there are other schools out there who are, you know, you can go get a good education, right? You can go to Stanford, you can go to Cal, right? You can go to, you know, wherever, right? Um, but the, the point's still well taken but to your point just a second ago, like, no, they absolutely don't want to because you can that that staff can can sell. Hey, we understand kids like you, but you can also come in and do it at a prestigious academic institution that is is more than just about the faith. Right. And they have done I think they've been able to to really pit, make that case to a lot of, you know, talented, um, you know, LDS players. And it's worked. Now, that's not to say they're going to it's not every kid. But certainly, you know, guys like Gentry and, um, you know, those kids, it, it does resonate. Um, I, I think, too, like one of the interesting aspects, and, and we focus on Broncos so much, but it's, you know, it's the whole staff. The, a lot of those guys are former players there, guys who whose families live there, there, you know, yeah, like they met they their work, wives there. Right. Exactly. They're, you know, their their whole families have gone there. They have family connections beyond just Bronco and, and them having played there. So there's a lot that goes into this. And I'm not. I'm not usually one of those people that talks a lot about like sort of the, the noise of a game, but I don't know how this one doesn't in some ways color it. Like if you're a player for UVA, right? You, you, I, I think you go into this game much more motivated than you would if the situation wasn't the same, right? I just don't think there's any way around that. I, I think your, your entire week, you understand what, how different this is, right? You understand. I mean, we're not privy to know like, you know, What's Bron what kind of emotion or or lack of it is he showing the players? You know, what are their conversations like? I think it's fascinating to think about like what those team meetings have been like, what those practices have been like. Um obviously it's a you know, you're you you have to travel, so there's a lot more, you know, there's a lot more um compression in terms of how much work you need to get done in the time that you have. But I just think that it's impossible to think that these kids aren't just not only mindful of how important this game is, but incredibly driven i mean with for lack of a description it's almost like a rivalry game in the sense of like the emotion and how you keep that emotion in check is going and how you harness it i mean i i don't think you can make too big a deal of that right granted it has been years right um but we're not talking about 
you know, we're not talking about anything that's like a, a small storyline, right? Um, I think beyond that too, if you look at BYU and sort of what's happened there and um, success they've had, and certainly you know are having a decent season this year, right? Um, they what what are they ranked now? Twenty fifth? They twenty fifth? Yes. Yeah, they dropped out of the polls and then got back in. Jump right, so they in, yeah. they were um, they were five and zero after beating Utah State. Then they had two losses first to Boise State and then to to Baylor, and then bounced back after against Washington State twenty one nineteen. I mean, their home crowds have been pretty solid, so this is probably going to be a, a pretty you know pretty big game. Um, I, I mean, it's just a fascinating one. How do let's talk about the football side of things, Ferber? As you look at this matchup, what's what's is this just about whether Virginia's offense can can get off the plane and do what it does uh, in Provo, or what do you, what are the key matchups in your opinion? Yeah, I'm kind of interested to see because there's really no way to quantify this, but like where does BYU's defense ultimately rank amongst the defenses that they've played? Um, because while UVA's offense has been really really good, I mean, what's the best defense they've played? Like I can't wake. I mean, like they they gave up 56 points to Army. Like they're not a great defense. Um, and I'm not trying to diminish what they've done, but like, you know, I don't, they haven't played like an elite defense yet. Um, and BYU's defense probably isn't elite, but they might be a little better than most, um, that UVA has seen. So it could be a little bit more of a challenge, but yeah, I think that the big things that it's going to come down to is can BYU create pressure, which is something that I was watching their players do their media availability stuff the other day. And it's something that they've struggled with. Um, I looked at their stats. They've only had two sacks in the last two games. So, I mean, certainly if that continues, UVA is probably going to score a lot of points. Um, And then also, like, can BYU's defensive backs cover UVA's players in space? Um, BYU usually has a very veteran team, physical team, but they don't always have the most athletic teams. So I'm interested to see, you know, how they do against UVA's receivers in space. So that'll be an interesting matchup. I think the other side of the ball is going to be – more where the game kind of ultimately ends up uh, is how many points does UVA give up? Because BYU's offense has not really done a whole lot the last few weeks and really throughout the season. I mean, they score in the twenties usually. Um, I don't know what their points per game is. It might be like 28 or something like that. Um, They've had a few games where they've gone over, but like most of their games, you know, 24, 19, 21, 17, that kind of stuff. That's, that's where they like to live. Um, if UVA holds them to that sort of like a low twenties ish point total, they're going to win. Like, I don't think they're going to lose that game. Um, if the game gets into like the thirties or higher then then it's anybody's game probably, but you know, on offense BYU can run the ball. They have a good running back, um, a good running scheme. They have a quarterback that can move, which has obviously been a problem at times for UVA throughout the season. So um, it'll be interesting to see how they defend that. I'm not really sure what their passing game is because they've had a few big games, but like nothing, I mean, obviously nothing like what Armstrong's been doing at UVA. So, um, you know, the, the, in, actually in their wins, they've had like less passing yards. So I think they're going to try to be a run first team. UVA is going to have to find a way to stop it and make them throw, um, try to get some pressure. You know, if they can, like I said, if they can hold BYU under, um, let's say, under 28 points, I feel pretty good about their ability to win this game. What about you, Damon? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, as I said last week, I think I'm at the point with this UVA offense where this is just what they do. Um, I think for for the better part of the first half of the season, you, I was kind of, all right, let's see if they can keep doing this. And they have basically 
been able to continue doing this. So I think uh, in, in some ways, BYU reminds me of maybe a better Duke. Um, that They have Algier, the running back, who they seem to have been leaning pretty heavily on. I think he had, what, like 30-some carries in the uh, the Washington State win last week? Yeah, uh, like yeah they, they how, give that guy the ball a lot. <laughs> yeah, similar to how Duke relied on Mateo Durant. So it'll probably be key, similar to the Duke game, if they can follow that formula of getting out to the quick lead, the early lead, especially maybe a two-score lead and maybe take that option away from BYU a little bit that obviously we saw how that can work to their benefit against, against Duke. Uh, although I do think BYU is probably more talented than Duke at this point, but, and then just defensively, it's just, uh, again, they, they made the plays against Durant against Duke, but we saw last week, the big plays kind of reared their ugly head again, again, Ferber hit on a couple of them in the, uh, the film room this week. Some of the some of the breakdowns that led to some of those as Georgia Tech was trying to come back, or the big run by Gibbs in the uh, in the second half. Uh, that those those are things we've seen a little too consistently from this defense this year, uh, giving up those big fifty yard plays uh, in the run game in particular. So so yeah, it's it, it's it's a matter of will can they avoid those things um the things that have hurt them defensively can they force more turnovers like that joey blunt interception was it i mean that could have been a completely different game if joey joey blunt doesn't make that second interception uh on saturday night and georgia tech goes in and scores again in that situation and, and stretches it back out to a two-score game um because the flip side of that was uh, i'm pretty sure that interception was the one that three plays later wicks yeah broke the, it was yeah. the second wicks touchdown then that put yeah UVA the long in front. The, yeah and that put uva in front for good so so yeah yeah I they think, score there it's 23 14 with not much time left in the first half yeah so that that that's it's a completely different game if joey blunt doesn't make that turn uh interception so it th- to me at this point, um, my answer is probably going to be similar to every game. It comes down to how UVA's defense executes. Do they force any turnovers? Do they get any stops? Uh, and, and it just has to be enough stops. Like we saw against Miami, like we saw against Louisville. Uh, they made just enough plays in those games, those critical plays is the phrase Bronco uses, to win those games, uh, especially on the road sometimes it only takes enough. You don't have to overwhelm an opponent. You don't have to shut them out like you did against Duke. Um, so to me, that's what this game's going to come down to is who makes more of those plays, BYU's offense or UVA's defense? Because I, I think UVA's offense will put up points. I think UVA's offense is going to put up points in every game from here on out because that's what UVA's offense does. I don't know if it'll be 40-some points, but yeah, it, it'll be enough to w- hit their benchmarks offensively. So it's a matter of the defense hitting the benchmarks, even if it's not 24 points is their pillar, but like 28 points. If they can hold a team under 28, uh, they're in a pretty good situation this year with the way the offense is playing. You know, let's get to those points. Um, <laughs> in the preseason, Dave picked this thing, um, UVA 45-38. He uh, would like to amend that. And in the process of amending it, he said he wanted to make it 38-35. UVA wins on a late field goal, which is the uh, at least the score, the Damon that you picked in the preseason. Um, so do you still want to stick with 38-35? Who's or do you – how are you feeling now? 
I was going to go 37-27 UVA. Um, I, uh, yeah, like I said earlier, I, I think they'll continue to put up points. BYU will probably be able to run the ball and keep the ball away from the UVA offense, which will prevent them from putting up 40-some points. But I think they'll – they've been so efficient. They're, they're what, uh, 23 for 23 in the red zone over this four-game winning streak, which is – Well, they had that one game that were eight for eight, so that, that helps. Yeah, no, they're, they're – they're, And think, then I think this week they were like five for five or something. No, they're 100% in the winning streak. Yeah. I just can't remember what – I think it's 23 for 23. I think it's – uh. Shout out uh, to Brendan. They, they were seven for seven last week or this past 16 week. 16 touchdowns week and seven field goals, I think it is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's pretty Over good. the course of these last four games. So, yeah. And so you hope that travels. So putting up points is obviously not going to be a concern. It's all about how, again, like I said, and I think the defense will, the defense will make enough plays in this one. So 37-27 is my, uh, my fearless prediction. All right, Ferber, in the preseason, you had this thing 38-37, if I'm reading Yeah, I remember saying game of the year. Yeah. I thought UVA would win on like a last-second field goal or something, but we've already had so many close finishes. <laughs> it is another road game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and also, I, you know, no disrespect to Chapel Hill, but this will probably be the toughest environment they play in. Yeah, um, you're talking 62, 63,000 at least, probably, right? The, BYU's the people, pretty loud. It'll be at the night. people I talk yeah. to expect a sellout, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all their games are usually pretty full. It's yeah. the only gig in town. They don't have alcohol there. So, um, you know, there's not a lot going on. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think. I think this is a game where, you know, a few weeks ago when BYU was undefeated, I, would, I was kind of pessimistic. And then as UVA continued to improve and then we saw some warts from BYU, I think I became more optimistic um, that UVA can win this game. Quite frankly, I mean, UVA has had a lot of issues on defense, but I think they're probably the better team. Um, the the metrics certainly think so. Well, Vegas doesn't. Um, but I think – it's a tough road environment. Obviously there's a lot of emotion in this game. I don't really know how that moves the needle one way or the other. I think, you know, we keep saying this every week now, but I think a quick start would really be beneficial. You don't want to get on the road in a loud place and then get the crowd into the game. When you, if you get down, you know, let's say like 13, nothing like they did last week. Um, and, and you kind of against a team like BYU, like a deficit like that, like they had last week, I think it's going to be much tougher to overcome. Um, because they have a recipe for success and, and they can kind of ride the home crowd and, and do well. But I think UVA ultimately wins the game. Um, I think they score their points. There's probably some sketchy moments here and there on defense. I'm going to, I wouldn't be surprised if they lost. And honestly, if they lose the game, it won't be a bad loss. It'll be to a ranked team on the road across the country at 10 15 Eastern. Um, a team that is, you know, six and two with a couple good wins. So, no, no shame if you lose it, if you play well, you know, and just don't come come up short. Um, but I do think they will ultimately win. I'm going to go with 35-28. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I expect it to be close. Like, if, if you ask me for the score, you know, obviously that's what I think. It'll be like a touchdown game or maybe less. Um, could go the other way, too, obviously. But I also, you know, Damon mentioned a 10-point win. I wouldn't be, like, totally shocked if UVA beats them, like, soundly. Um it would take a really good performance, one of their best of the year. But I think that we could come out of this game and be like, okay, UVA's offense is really, really good. And BYU just couldn't keep up. Um, and and that could end up being what it is. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that's like my top projection, but it's certainly in the cards possible. 
What's the line right now? Does anybody know? Uh, BYU's favored by like two or two and a half. Two and a okay. half the last I looked. They opened so, at minus one and it kind of moved in their favor, but all like the SP plus FPI type metrics favor UVA. So I've been thinking about this for a couple of days. Um, I, 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 I don't know if I've said this on the podcast. I've certainly thought it before, but I think UVA has really proven it to me now, which is in – when we talk about UVA basketball, we talk about efficiency, right? That you have to be so efficient against them because typically the pack line puts you in a spot where you're not going to get enough possessions. You're going to have to make them count, right? And I kind of feel that way about UVA's offense this year. Like Armstrong and company do such a good job of putting points on the board that like if you don't put points on the board, you know, UVA's defense isn't like obviously, you know, hitting on all cylinders. But they can get a stop or two. And those stops are huge because it puts a lot of pressure on the opposing team because you're going to have to keep scoring um, all night long. And so I, I look yeah, at I mean, this one thing, way to Sorry, but like one way to look at it would be how many points did each opponent have to score this year to beat them? Because almost yeah. always it's like in the 40s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, so Even the North Carolina game and lost by 20 points, North Carolina <laughs> would have had to score 40 to beat them. Right, exactly. Like the offense is going to get theirs. The question is not is whether your offense is going to be able to get yours. And I, I look at this game and I, I kind of like you guys. I think UVA's probably got the better team. I think playing on the road at night and such, is that's a you know nothing to shake a stick at. Um, but I do think that UVA wins it. I had it in the preseason 30 to 27. I'm going to give, cause and I didn't, I didn't realize UVA's offense was going to be as good as they are. Give me Virginia 38, 27. Um, and I mean, I don't know what happens, you know, after that. I mean, I would imagine we're going to see a lot of emotion and stuff from, um, from Bronco and company, especially if they win. But, um, nonetheless, we'll be fascinating to watch it all unfold. Um, sometime Sunday morning. <laughs> Um, all right, I think this is a good place to put a pin in it. Um, if you are somebody out there who found the podcast through the website, thank you very much for giving us a listen. If you don't mind, you can look us up on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you're so inclined, give us a rating and review. It helps to get us out in front of more people. Now, if you're somebody who found the pod but hasn't given us a look at the website yet, check us out, CavsCorner.com. Let's see, starting working backwards, you can do the take twos up there. Damon had a story about the um, the offense trying to stay focused on the process and not the stats. Um, had a had a good update uh, on four star um, 2024 kid Adams uh, Jalen I think is his first name and I don't know why I just blanked on it but I should have that in the notes and my apologies um, roles remain up for grabs on the pitching staff Damon just sneaking in there with a little baseball story at the beginning of the week we got the three two one we got to have the ACC sees the ACC we got the PFF grades and then Ferber's film room uh, on um, Keaton Thompson so plenty of stuff to check out we'll have plenty more coming into. Saturday night's matchup between the Wahoos and the Cougars out in Provo. So, yeah, again, I want to thank everybody out there for continuing to support the show. I want to thank uh, Ferber and Damon for giving graciously of their time, as always. Hopefully Dave's assignment went well tonight, um, and we'll have him back on the show next week. So, for Justin Ferber and Damon Dillman, I'm Brad Franklin, publisher of CavsCorner.com. Thanks for coming out. We'll see you soon. Yeah.